1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nagett. We have so much to talk about that I want to get right to introducing our panel today. It's Thursday, which means that my partner is Kevin Riley, the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Good morning, Bill. And uh, of course, we're all still basking in the glow of the
2: Atlanta Braves' world championship and uh we're staying busy at the newspaper with people just clamoring for uh the souvenir editions we've been creating so i've got one saved for uh, you
1: yeah i noticed by the way looking at the paper this morning you sold a lot of display ads around this world series championship congratulations to you newspapers need all the help they can get these days
2: (laughs) Absolutely, uh, Bill. And uh, thanks for uh, reminding your listeners of that. So uh, I think if you're not a subscriber, uh, you know, you're missing out. I'll just say that.
1: (laughs) We're uh, also joined today by Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur, who told me before the show started she has been a big baseball fan all her life. Hi, Mary Margaret.
0: Good morning. I went to see the Crackers as a small child. I remember those. Visits
1: very well. Wow, wow. That's really, really interesting to me. Um, thank you for being here. Um, professor Fred Smith is with us, professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, we're really glad to have you on today because there are a couple of uh, stories we're going to look at that do, in fact, involve uh, constitutional law. So thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. And we're joined by Edward Lindsay. Ed Lindsay, of course, is a former Georgia state representative, uh, represented the city of Atlanta, um, and uh, now is a partner uh, with Denton's, the world's largest law firm, and in fact oversees their entire government relations uh, practice in the state of Georgia. How are you doing, Edward? Just fine. And uh, I don't quite go back to the Cracker days, but I started rooting for the Braves in 1966. Well, that's pretty good. That That's establishing a pretty significant credential. All right. You know, um, I've often said on the show that I, I think we're going to start off in one direction with one topic on the show. And then something happens at the last minute that makes me realize we should go in another direction. So before the show... We were beginning, all of us who are on today, to have a really, I think, fascinating conversation about what was happening with the trial of the three men accused of murdering Ahmad Arbery. And since we have two attorneys and a preeminent legal, constitutional legal scholar on the show, it would be wrong of me not to start with that. So that said, Fred Smith, um, a couple of things happening in the Ahmad Arbery Uh, Trial that I want to talk with you about Um, One of them is that even though the jury has now been seated and opening arguments are scheduled to begin tomorrow the um, defense has said it may want to request uh, a Change of venue. Can they do that once this thing is underway?
3: Sure. The defense is able to move whenever the evidence becomes clear that they're in a venue where, uh, where it's not possible to have uh, an impartial jury. Um, and uh, so that's the right that, de- that belongs to the defense alone uh, under the Sixth Amendment, uh, because the defendants have uh, the right to uh, to uh, be judged by a jury of their peers. Um, and uh, And it's only the defense that could make um, such a motion. Uh, so, under state law and also as a matter of constitutional law, the prosecution can't make that motion because when the defense makes that motion, they're essentially waiving um, their right to be tried by a jury of their peers um, and uh, allowing themselves to be uh, judged by a, a jury elsewhere.
2: So, Fred, um, I've just got to ask you this. We end up now uh, in a highly, obviously racially charged case. I mean, and We have 11 white jurors and one black juror, a black man. Um, And, again, I I understand that just because people fit into a certain demographic category, that does not mean they will think a certain way uh, individually. But uh, didn't the defense get what it wanted here? They probably will stick with it in Brunswick, right?
3: Well, yeah. So I, I don't know their strategy, right? So, so somewhere <laughs> in a room, somewhere there, there were defense attorneys who made a lot of, made a lot of calculations before they decided um, to make this uh, particular motion. Um, it may be that they expect that the motion will be denied, but that they're preserving it. Um, so, uh, down the line, at some point, there may have to be an appeal. Um, so if the, uh, if the defendants are convicted. Uh, and the defendants want to appeal, they can't appeal something that they didn't raise. Uh, and so sometimes you'll see in a criminal trial, uh, or civil trials for that matter, someone um, raise an objection or even renew an objection at certain points to, to furnish the record, that is to say, so that when there is, um, when it is on appellate review, they can look back and say, look, on page such and such, we raised this and it was denied, um, and they lose that ability to ever do that if they don't raise it. So that may be why we see them raising it, even if they do have the jury that they might want.
1: Uh, Mary Margaret, the prosecution objected immediately to this, um the fact that only one African American was seated. and and they they did so because re- remember that we have to remember there are several attorneys for the defense in this case, and only one on the prosecution uh, uh, represents one uh, essentially <laughs> attorney in the case. So the defense lawyers had far more. I think they had twenty four strikes, something like that compared to the the prosecution's eight. And the prosecution alleges, Mary Margaret, that the defense lawyers used that to eliminate black
0: jurors. I followed the jury selection process in my in my hand paper copy of the newspaper very closely. It's fascinating to me. And striking uh, African-American potential jurors because they're African-American is a violation of constitutional rights. And, and that, as Brett said, we're preserving legal rights. This is a case of national uh, optics and national significance, and it is about part of what's happening is what the public is going to absorb and hear and respond to when a jury ultimately reaches uh, reaches a conclusion, which is down the road, but something that I'm already thinking about and worrying about. If an all-white jury, except for one African-American man, finds these uh, offenders, three offenders, uh, not guilty, that will be communicated to the public. What is the public's response to a verdict of any particular kind? And I'm thinking about that down the road.
4: Well, as as Mary Margaret pointed out, um, Mm -hmm. it is unconstitutional to uh, to strike individuals solely because of their race, and and it's a common motion to be raised after you have such an apparent situation taking place. The court did find uh did recognize uh, the uh the the racial nature of the strikes that uh, under the law now now then put the burden on the defendants and the defendant' attorneys to come up with non racial reasons uh to explain their um their strikes, which they did, uh, apparently to the satisfaction of the judge. Um, and we'll just have to see where it goes from here. I might ask, add one anecdotal to, to what, uh, Professor Smith pointed out a little while ago. I do recall, uh, a few years back, I was trying a case and at one point I raised like 13 different, uh, objections and opposing side said, well, you know, your, your honor, Mr. Lindsay just trying to build a record. And the judge said, well, that's exactly what his job is. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey. uh, well, I want to, I want to come back to you though, Fred. So uh, you pointed out that, um, uh, you know, I think they're called preemptory strikes and could, could you just explain that a little bit? I mean, in the end, right, people, the, the lawyers can do that, but they can only do that with a certain boundary. So let's just be crystal clear about that for a moment.
3: Sure. So throughout this process that's been taking place, um, over the last, uh, week or so, um, there have been two types of challenges that the prosecution and the defense have been allowed to make. Right. So one is uh, a challenge for cause. Right. So this is a circumstance where, uh, you know, one of the parties is able to argue this person can't be impartial. And actually, there were some jurors who literally said, I can't be impartial. There's nothing you can show me. Right. Um, An unusual number of jurors said something to that effect. Uh, And so that's one type of strike. But then uh, you're asking about a different type of strike, these peremptory strikes, um, which are entirely discretionary. So uh, the prosecution um, got some uh, eight or 12, um, and the, uh, the defense got uh, 24 because there were um, – there's three defendants. And so each of them um, got, uh, got eight. Um, and, uh, and yes, those can be for any reason except <laughs> uh, race, uh, gender. Um, for religion. And in some parts of the country, sexual orientation is on that list too. That's not the case here. Um, but in Georgia, those are the reasons why you can't do it. Um, and so what happens is, though, it's really difficult sometimes to point out why someone is, is uh, being um, uh, asked to be removed from a jury. And so it takes a number, it takes something of a, kind of a pattern um, and they, this is this pattern is called just to le- use one ease, it's, it's called a prima facie case for for, for law students listening, uh, for, for everyone. So, um, and so over time, right, uh, a pattern develops, and someone on either side can object and say, "Objection, Your Honor!" Under the Equal Protection Clause, under a case from 1986 called Batson. This, there's evidence here that they are being removed, that jurors are being removed on account of their race. And the the person whose rights are being violated in that situation is the potential juror. Um, It's not actually the defendant in that case. It's the potential juror whose rights are potentially being violated. And then whoever is being accused of racial discrimination has to give race neutral reasons. And, these days, uh, attorneys take copious notes um, where they're able to point to reasons uh, that aren't based on race. Um, and um, the judge apparently was satisfied here, although he did say that he detected a pattern of of racial discrimination, even though he um, ruled with the defense.
1: So, Edward, I do think we need to keep in mind uh, everything that Fred uh, uh, reminds us of or, t- or tells some of us about what the law is in terms of this. This is also public perception, clearly in the long run, that is going to have the biggest uh, impact on the country as, as the country and the state watches this thing unfold. But, but here's one of the things that I believe it was the judge who pointed out yesterday that may weigh into how we look at this. Uh, He pointed out that the composition of this jury, um, in fact, is relatively reflective of the demographics of Glynn County. Um, Not quite. Glynn County is something like 64 uh, percent white and 26 percent African-American. Nevertheless, it is a dominantly white a, a county and and that may weigh into the thinking that the people have about whether the ju- that jury is representative or not at least from a legal point of view well you, you're absolutely right there is that public perception uh that's so
4: important within the court system uh, that folks have confidence in the outcome of the case and are willing to accept the verdict regardless of which way it goes um famously i think it goes back to the 19th century um, one uh, jurist one time said that uh, you know the the, the uh, judiciary doesn't have an army; it only has the confidence of the people uh, when it comes to its mm-hmm. verdicts. So that's that's very important. That said, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that that the defendant's lawyers' responsibility is not to public perception, but to simply represent their clients zealously. That's their charge. And, uh, and a lot of times uh, good defense lawyers, criminal defense lawyers in particular, are in a position of having to defend folks that may not be liked uh, in the public in general. But their job is to go in there and make sure that they protect that individual's constitutional rights.
1: Mary people are
0: watching People are watching this trial. It is a national story, and public perception is very, very important. I'm, I'm also following the Rittenhouse case up in uh, the Midwest in terms of another self-defense kind of uh, story being told. And in both these cases, we have videos, we have films. And in the uh, jury inquiries that I was following in the newspaper, I was pretty fascinated by how people were clearly stating that looked like murder to me. That would give facts for uh, a cause uh, elimination of that jury. Another juror in the newspaper told me that he had, he had taken the path, he'd driven the path, he'd gone to the scenes. Those are the kinds of factual things that will be reviewed very closely on appeal about whether or not those were eliminations or cause or uh, peremptory clauses. It's a legally difficult case, uh, but it's probably from many of our perspectives, it's a case of national public optics and public discussion racial bias as on the streets.
2: You know, I want to come back to what I think each one of us, uh, are, are, are understanding about this. And it's that public trust thing. I mean, uh, the, the practical matter bill, we both work in a business where if we don't have the audience's trust, they're not going to believe what we report, what our journalism says. And the legal system is completely in that same category, despite the, uh, you know, authority judges, uh, often have. And I do think that that this sets up dangerously in that way. If the verdict were to come a certain way with what's going on through the voir dire process and seating jurors, and we look at this jury and the, 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 racial balance of it. So, um, Fred, I mean, don't you think that, um, this is the judge is really taking some chances here?
5: Well, you know, that
3: public perception isn't one of the constitutional rights that the judge even has to be thinking about um, or, uh, or balancing. Now, I will say that um, Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, when he was on the court, he proposed eliminating peremptory strikes altogether. He, he said that there's just there, there wasn't a way to do it. You can't really actually detect why people are doing what they're doing. Um, it's been a long time since the days, not that long, I mean, only a few decades, but it's been a long time since the days that prosecutions, prosecutors were literally like when you got their notes, they had been writing down the race of the jurors and and, and tracking it in in obvious ways. Um, and so, uh, and so it may be that the only way to kind of eliminate that from the process is just to eliminate peremptory strikes altogether. But, um, but you know, uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall certainly smarter than me. So, um, he probably, he probably had it right. (laughs)
1: All right. Well, thank you all for, for that conversation. Uh, again, um, opening arguments are scheduled to begin uh, in the next day in, in, in a trial that has been long incoming, and that, as Mary Margaret has pointed out a couple times now, is going to be watched by the entire country uh, to see um, what happens to the men accused of murdering Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver is coming to us, I can see, because we're watching on Webex, from her office at the state capitol, where after yesterday you got underway, but a lot of the session yesterday devoted to celebrating the Braves, Mary Margaret, establishing the ground rules for mask wearing in the House, voluntary mask wearing in the Senate, testing, and all the sort of COVID protections you are um, dealing with as the special session gets underway. But now you're down to business, Mary Margaret, Um, redrawing the congressional Mm -hmm. and legislative maps of the state of Georgia. Let me just give you a quick summary and then ask each of you, but I'll start with you, Mary Margaret, to um, weigh in on this. Um, The AJC this morning published a piece in which it looked at a couple of maps that are uh, apparently being proposed by Republican leaders. Um, Mary Margaret, according to the reporting, the Republicans are proposing a house map which would create 97 seats that lean Republican, 83 that lean Democrat. Now, right now you have 103 Republicans and 77 Democrats. Does um, that sound like a map that actually is moving forward, or is it just an opening bid?
0: I don't think I know the answer to that question. Both bills were introduced mm-hmm. yesterday the congressional map and the state house map uh, for all of us house folks. And uh, the optics, uh, the, stra- the litigation strategy, the political strategy, and the optic strategies are all at play. And all of us are scrambling to try to ascertain as best we can what are the strategies here. It looks like the pairings of incumbent legislators, which is always significant, um, is part of the optics. You've paired Democrat legislators in the same district. You've paired Republican legislators in the same district. And you have paired a mixture of Republican and Democrats. They have an assortment of pairings that optics, uh, say, looks fair. They've also created open seats that lean democratic, and they will be talking about that significantly. That's part of a litigation strategy and an optics strategy. To what extent they are wedded to these particular lines at this point is just unknowable from my perspective. When you put two very... uh, Prominent and successful Democratic women in the suburbs in the same district. <clears throat> when you had alternatives to, because of the growth in that area, to create and you create an empty district right next to them. You're you're beginning to show what a pattern has existed. It makes me nervous of the newly elected, highly qualified Ph.D. epidemiology medical doctor senator and uh, advanced degree uh, social mental health worker, when you begin to put those women together in Democratic, newly elected women into um, Republican-leaning districts, then we all get very nervous, those of us on the Democratic side. What's the litigation strategy? What's the public optics strategy? What's the real political strategy is what we're scrambling to find out today.
1: So, uh, Edward, let's bring you in on this conversation and uh, tell people that you, uh, you were in the House uh, and we're a, a leader in the House when the last uh, reapportionment, redistricting uh, took place. But let me ask you a question if I may. Um, you, you know, you know that the argument that Democrats are going to make is that the, there's been such an expansive growth of, of, of particular of a of potentially democratic leaning, Uh, Voters, African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics, and they're not going to get their fair share of representation the way Republicans are likely to draw the maps. But please weigh in any way you want to, Edward.
4: (laughs) Well, um, you're right. I I was uh, in the General Assembly uh, in 2011, and I was the majority whip at the time. And a lot of the arguments that are being made by uh, Democrats today are the same arguments that were made 10 years ago. And I would point out that those maps were upheld uh, by both the Obama Justice Department and the courts uh, after a challenge to them both. The, the fact of the matter is you, you can't take politics out of politics, uh, and uh, the, uh, the act of uh, redrawing maps is an inherently political Uh, Event. That said, there are certain limitations, as we've discussed earlier when it comes to the uh, the, the criminal case down in Brunswick, as to what uh, the the majority can do. There are essentially four things that they need to be looking at. One is whether or not it's constitutional, uh, and that usually falls on the question of whether or not it adheres to one person, one vote. In terms of the different maps, uh, that was a problem that the Democrats fell into in 2001 when they tried to draw the maps that they did. The second issue is whether or not it's legal, and that usually falls to the question of whether or not it, uh, it complies with the requirements of the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965. The third issue uh, is is whether it's ethical uh, in, in the public mind. Uh, what I mean by that is it does it uh, put together communities of interest to allow them to uh, to elect a representative of their choice. If a party goes too far, uh, the, the general uh, voters will, will a lot of times whip back against them, um, as what happened in 2002 when a lot of voters believed that the Democrats had gone too far in the map that they had drawn. And suddenly, uh, Sonny Perdue and Saxby Chambos' whose districts had been demolished uh, in redistricting in 2001, suddenly became a governor and a U.S. senator. And there were other uh, radical shifts that took place in our politics. So there is a danger of a party going too far in terms of of what it does. Uh, You always expect a certain degree of politics. I would also add that while we talk about the partisan nature uh, of the fight, Uh, A lot of what takes place is actually just driven by demographics uh, and population shifts. And the fact of the matter is uh, the area south of I-20, the populations have by and large either stagnated or gone down. And so there's going to understandably be a lot of districts that are going to be shifted to the north, and a lot of folks are going to be paired together, particularly in south and middle Georgia. So there's a lot of issues that go on. I uh, will also add that uh redistricting is unlike any other kind of session where sometimes your closest uh ally uh politically is suddenly someone who is trying to chomp away at a at a at a neighborhood or a city that you <laughs> that you desperately want to keep
2: though uh, is it is it fair to say Ed, that the the republicans are Thinking way ahead, maybe even further than the ten years, uh, when they when they kind of acknowledge the demographic changes and try to set it up in a way that go ahead what's inevitably gonna happen, they don't fall victim to and instead just kind of anticipate it.
4: I think I think that's part of well, part of it gets back to and, and Mary Margaret alluded to it is is being concerned about the possible legal challenges and not going too far. Uh, you know, if they were to try to draw maps i will go back and pick on my friends on the Democratic side back in 2001 who were concerned about similar things. They actually tried to increase their majorities uh, through the maps that were drawn in 2001, despite the fact that there were obvious shifts uh, to the Republican side taking place in the state. And that was one thing that helped bring them down. Republicans in this situation appear to be more savvy in in terms of acknowledging a certain degree of, of shifts. In uh, voter preferences, that's why you have the House members voluntarily accepting, uh, Republicans voluntarily accepting maps that that may very well bring down their numbers from uh, 103 to 97. Although a lot of these Fred, districts uh, are swing districts, and we'll have to just see what happens.
1: I, I apologize, uh, Edward. Uh, Fred, um, ironically, well, first of all, this is the first redistricting in the country that will be done without pre-clearance uh, being a requirement. Uh, the Supreme Court struck it down. <clears throat> uh, but ironically, uh, it was just yesterday that the House bill, the John uh, Lewis uh, voting rights bill, which would have restored uh, pre-clearance requirements, uh, uh, was once again defeated by the Republicans in the Senate. Um So, you know, what is what is the meaning of of the fact that there won't be a a pre-clearance provision when redistricting uh, is finished this year?
3: Yeah. So under the original Voting Rights Act of 1965, it was reauthorized uh, under President Nixon in the early 70s and under President Reagan in the early 80s and under George W. Bush in 2006. um, All all the versions of the Voting Rights Act um, had. Um, which you're re- referencing pre preclearance, right, where um, in a number of states, predominantly in the South, um, whenever any significant voting change took place, including redistricting, um, it would need to be shown to the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice would determine whether or not it was retrogressive, that is, whether or not um, it was reducing minority uh, voting strength. And if it was, then the Department of Justice could Um, reject it. Um, That provision was overturned in 2013 on the view that it uh, undermined the equal sovereignty or the equal dignity uh, of the states. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, in an earlier opinion, said, quote, things have changed in the South, unquote, Um, suggesting that uh, kind of the intentional um, racial uh, barriers to voting um, were a thing of uh, the past, and I'll leave it to listeners um, to determine whether or not. Um, they were right about that, um, so uh, so pre-clearance is gone, but that doesn't mean that the Voting Rights Act is gone, right? So there's still uh, the, another provision, Section Two. Um, And, uh, and under section two, certainly intentional racial discrimination is unconstitutional, but it's all, uh, sorry, it's illegal, but it's also uh, illegal to do things um, that have the effect of perpetuating uh, intentional racial discrimination. Um, And exactly what that means is something the court, I think is still uh, kind of working out, but it's clearly on the minds of the Republicans as they're drawing these maps because they could be much more aggressive.
1: All right, I know that Mary Margaret, you want to get in. There are a few other aspects of this I really want to talk about, but l- let's do this. I'm already late for the first break of the show. So let's take our break, come back, and talk a little bit more about the beginning of redistricting at the Georgia State Capitol. <laughs> Kevin Riley, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, and Fred Smith join us for today's political rewind. Uh, Kevin, um, and and we'll continue our conversation about redistricting. I do want to point out that, um, and it's already been mentioned, I think, by Edward Lindsay, uh, you know. It's redistricting can be a weapon to be used against people of your own party who you don't happen to like very much. Uh, there's an example cited in the reporting by the AJC this morning. Uh, Kevin Phillips Singleton is a state rep from Sharpt, Sharpsburg. Uh, he has been a critic of David Ralston, and it appears that a first map that Republican leaders are proposing for the House would uh, redraw his lines so that he would end up in a Democratic district uh, with uh, um, uh, Mandisha Thomas, uh, who would be more likely to beat him in in an election down there. He complained, did Philip Singleton, that this is an example of how the Speaker is seeking revenge. And he points out something that's significant here, that if he gets drawn into that district— He would be he the people who voted for him in his current district would lose the representation they asked for. And that's a problem uh, that you have to deal with, whether it's Republicans, Democrats. Does the district get to elect the people it wants?
2: Well, I really do that, that, uh, uh, you know, think that part of what we're talking about here is do uh, voters get to pick their politician or does their politician get to pick their voters? And, uh, you know, we've got some people, I think, with strong views on that. But, yeah, I, was, I don't think anyone found that surprising that the uh, House maps were going in that direction. Mary Margaret?
0: Kevin asked uh, whether or not the Republicans were thinking beyond 10 years. I think they're thinking two, four, six, and eight years. I think they're drawing these maps in contemplation of population growth. Uh, And they're putting it together in terms of holding on to power, but also a litigation strategy. For instance, we have eight six, eight Republican and six Democrat congressional elected folks in Washington right now. If they try to draw a map that's nine five, that backs away from the reality of what voters chose, that that is beginning to tamper with uh, that. That's a riskier litigation strategy. Uh, the isolated cases of a, of a representative Singleton are always going to be there. I think there are fewer in number this year as I look at the other pairings. Uh, David Ralston's power is it seems to be more complete and less controversial uh, at each turn, based on his political uh, satisfaction of his Republican representatives. Uh, so the pairings that are existing today are more practical pairings based on who's retiring. We don't know exactly why, I did not know exactly why Sharon Cooper and Matt Dollar were paired together, two veteran Republican legislators in uh, Cobb County, and Matt Dollar told me he's not running again. So that explains that. Uh, The complication of Viola Davis and Billy Mitchell, two Democratic uh, representatives uh, of of freshman versus a veteran uh, makes me think: What is Billy Mitchell up to? What is is he running mm-hmm. statewide? So the pairings are interesting, but the political uh, the political punishment is is really less evident to me this year uh, than it has been in past years. What is more reality to me is how carefully the Republicans are trying to draw districts to maintain their powers for another one cycle another two cycles and in context with what are the real growth patterns that they want to take advantage of
1: edward let's make sure we keep our uh, uh listeners uh, straight on what we're talking about here we're talking about legislative of course and a couple of cases yep. here but mary margaret also pointed to the congressional map um, Democrats suggest that, given that Joe Biden won Georgia, given that Democrats have made inroads and in 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 major population areas of the state like Gwinnett and Cobb County, that the that the congressional that we should probably have close to an eight to eight split in uh, our our congressional seven, seven, seats. Yeah. She points, I mean, seven seven. She points out that um, uh, what the Republican map would would try to do is. Uh, make Lucy McBath, the Democrat in the sixth, vulnerable to a challenge and maybe preserve uh, Carolyn Bordeaux in the seventh. And that's when she talked about this notion that we could have as many as a nine to five split, because we're also wondering whether the uh, Republicans are going to try to uh, uh, change Sanford Bishop's district down in southeast Georgia, where he's held on to that seat for decades, make that a Republican district. So that's part of what we're talking about here, Edward.
4: It, it, it is, but uh, you know, a, a lot of the individuals involved can, can change the dynamics. Uh, there are Republicans that win in Democratic areas and Democrats that win in Republican areas just because of the strength of their own, uh, their own uh, representation over the years. Uh, Sanford Bishop uh, has been representing that area down in southwest Georgia for a long time. And I will tell you right now, uh, I don't care how his district shifts, he's going to be a very uh, difficult individual to unseat, given uh, his uh, his connections with those that community down there. Um, and, the, and And also down there, once again, gets back to not only – Uh, Are we dealing with partisan issues, but we're dealing with demographic issues? And the fact of the matter is, down in South Georgia, uh, there has been a a drop in population. So you're going to have to have folks' districts get shifted in some times radically. Uh, One, uh, you know, in terms of the, uh, you know, whether or not we end up uh, in 2002 with a 9 5 delegation or a 7 7 delegation, uh, what I will sort of point out to folks is that. This is usually one or two sort of uh, terms. Uh, The 6th District used to be one of the most safest uh, Republican uh, districts in the country uh, due to uh, shifts in attitude, I think, even more pronounced than shifts in demographics. Uh, You know, suddenly we had Lucy McBath winning. So uh, the fact that we have some shifts taking place in the end, at the end, it's the individual running that I will uh, sort of emphasize. But, yeah, I mean, there is some politics involved. I'm not going to deny that. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Kevin, so, so Fred, Fred, let me ask you a question, and just to make this crystal clear for listeners, we're I'm going to focus on the, I guess it's the sixth and seventh congressional districts where there have been changes over these past uh, couple cycles of elections, where Lucy McBath uh, won in the sixth. As Ed points out, that was the district that sent Johnny Isaacson uh, to to Congress. It was the district that sent Newt Gingrich to Congress, although it's shifted. And then uh, Carolyn Bordeaux won uh, in a fast-changing uh, district that included a lot of Gwinnett County. It's a little more complicated than that. But Fred, if the Republicans seek to create trouble there for the Democrats, and it looks like they've decided Lucy's going to Lucy McBath is going to get the trouble. Can they misstep? Can they do something based on your interpretation? And I get this is hypothetical that won't work or that would be a big misstep and ultimately uh, get them crossways with, you know, what the constitutional law requires.
3: Yeah. So I think they're looking at the sixth. And the irony is that although the sixth is represented by a black woman, uh, it wasn't predominantly black and minority voters who put her there. Right. So, uh, so, and that's what, that's, what, that's what matters from the law. It's about people's ability to elect the candidates of their choice. And so they looked at the six uh, and they said, well, what's, ha- what's happening here is that it's highly educated white voters um, uh, who, uh, who, who put Lucy McBath in office pre- uh, predominantly. And then they looked at the seventh and they said it's, it's people of color um, in, uh, in rapidly changing Gwinnett County. And so I think they decided that they might get in more trouble. If they mess with the seventh too,
0: uh,
3: and so they made the seventh more democratic, um, and uh, and and they're focusing on the sixth, and I think that they're banking on the idea that um, that that they're less likely to get into Section Two trouble um, by messing with uh, Lucy McBath's district.
1: Mary Margaret, that's a really interesting observation, an important one. But also, while we talk about this, um, let's point out that remember the Supreme Court has said that, yes, racial discrimination in redistricting is unconstitutional, is illegal, but partisan redistricting is perfect. The court says we can't get involved in that. That's not something we can deal with. But, Mary Margaret, go ahead.
0: The Lucy M. Gatt district comes into my house district in, in Brookhaven. So when you look at racial discrimination in these new eras of, of legal strategies, we have a large Hispanic and a large Asian population that's growing very fast in the corporate high educated crowd that Fred referred to. Uh, Forsyth County growth is is very fastest growing county in the nation on some kind of measurements, but it's also an Asian growth and a Hispanic growth. corporate business educated. What's fascinating, the risk that the Republicans are taking one more time, in my view, is alienating ethnic populations that are not voting for them today. And if they mess with Lucy McBath's district, not only is it suburban women that we talk so much about that are at risk in this uh, cycle as a political risk, but the constitutional and legal risk of messing around with Hispanic and Asian growth, A highly educated population is highly problematical, in my view. Uh, If they try to go 9-5, I think that's a risky legal strategy, even though the Forsyth County growth is more likely to be white growth than Gwinnett County growth for Carolyn Bordeaux. It is a racial analysis that they're tinkering with, and uh, the new eras of litigation are going to be very sensitive to other ethnic minorities. All right.
1: um, let's take a break. We are going to have, you know, we now know that uh, Speaker Ralston has pretty much made it clear, Mary Margaret, you're going to be there right up till Thanksgiving. And I think he suggested it's conceivable. Mary Margaret, you don't think it will take you all the way till Thanksgiving?
0: I think he's, he's, he's going to make way too many people mad if he goes into Thanksgiving week. <laughs> what I'm trying to calculate <laughs> is he has a strategy of exactly how many days and how he's going to roll out the votes. And my guess, I'm guessing is we'll end on Friday, November 19th.
1: All right. Um, Mary Margaret Oliver makes a prediction, but we'll have plenty of time to continue talking about redistricting as the process unfolds in the next couple of weeks. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and be back with more in a moment. We have two issues I'd really like to at least get a little time to talk about before we run out of time uh, today. So let me just uh, do the first one briefly because there'll be plenty of time to talk about it tomorrow and moving forward. Edward Lindsay, is David Perdue really going to challenge Brian Kemp uh, in the primary for a governor? It It's a tantalizing thing for us journalists to contemplate and for Democrats but it seems to me like an awfully unlikely scenario. Am I way off base? I I I think maybe you wanted me to start with that.
4: I I, I still yeah. think it's a bit unlikely. Um David Perdue is is well regarded in Republican circles. Uh and despite objections by uh the former president, so is uh so is Brian Kemp. And I've heard from a lot of folks who say, yeah, you know, we think a lot of David Perdue, we think he he could be a good governor, but we think we already have a good Republican governor. And so I think you'll probably hear a lot of that from his supporters, which overlap with uh, Brian Kemp's supporters. Uh, it would be an ex- it would be a bloodbath uh, if it was to take place. And uh, and quite frankly, uh, it'd be something that I think the Democrat Party would 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 relish. Uh, but I, I still think it's somewhat unlikely, but uh, but we'll just have to see. I mean, I do know that uh, the former president is looking around uh, for someone to run against Kemp that he thinks can beat Kemp because of, of a grudge that he has against him. But uh, but I'm still somewhat doubtful that, that, that David Perdue, given his personality, will be the one to want to have to walk into that kind of bloodbath. But, you know, in politics, uh, <laughs> stranger things have happened.
2: Yeah, I think, Bill, it's a particularly, uh, you know, for Republicans, a particularly scary idea for for this reason. Okay, Um, let's look at it and and Ed Ed called it a bloodbath. Uh, He uh, is prone to the understatement, I suppose. But um, the, the idea that the Republicans would be busy attacking each other. Well, there's some uncertainty on the Democratic side. Everyone has assumed Stacey Abrams will ra- uh, run no matter what, but we haven't heard from her. So, I mean, okay, Purdue enters, uh, he and Kemp go at it. The Democrats are potentially forced to put someone else up who gets the free ride during that primary period of, of not being forced to do very much or define themselves. I I just don't I just think in the end, uh, you know, the the, current governor, an incumbent governor has a lot of power and a big platform. And I think Republicans will come to their senses that, gosh, this what how could this really help us?
0: I have no idea uh, whether David Perdue. Is really contemplating a run, but it's pretty fascinating and, and amusing on a certain level as a Democrat to watch. What's the psychology of a CEO type personality of David Perdue losing a statewide race that he believes very strongly that he should have won? I mean, his you cannot dismiss an ego uh, connection with losing versus winning, and the future of what that race would look like has to have be some part of his psychology.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here for a second because it looks like maybe Bill's uh, audio connection has failed. I'm sure uh, we'll quickly get that get that fixed. But um, and I'm going to ask you, uh, Fred. I mean, uh, and I know this isn't really a constitutional law uh, question, okay. which is your expertise. But but I mean, does it make sense to challenge an incumbent governor at a time like this in Georgia? I mean, why would someone do that?
3: Um. Well, I think they do it because they want to be governor. <laughs> Honestly, I don't <laughs> I mean if they if they look if they look at the it's a math equation and if they think they can uh can can pull it off, uh that's that's why they do it. They'd rather be governor than not. yeah, well that's that's the that's the
4: sixty four dollar that's part of the sixty four dollar question. There's a lot of folks who wanna be governor. There are not that many people who want to run <laughs> to be governor. Uh, those are two very yeah. different things, and and I do think that all, that a lot of folks and someone like David Perdue, who was a very successful CEO, right. and uh, and was well regarded in Republican circles uh, as a as a U.S. senator, uh, would be sort of saying, "Well, you know, I'd like to be governor." The question is, does he want to go through a very bruising uh, primary uh, in which uh, he may be the cause of a Democratic win next November? That's a therein lies a, a serious part of the equation that David Perdue or, or anyone who chooses to challenge uh, uh, Governor Kemp uh, in the primary.
5: Jump in, we had power surge uh, here, and so I lost my connection completely. I bet you had a fascinating conversation, but I, I know there's more to talk about here. But I don't want to lose the opportunity while we have Fred Smith here to at least take a couple minutes to talk about what the meaning is of the Supreme Court's uh, hearing yesterday of the New York gun law. Fred, to make it really simple with a little time we have, essentially what the court was asked to do was to review whether the restrictions that New York state has put on where you can carry a concealed weapon uh, uh, to determine the constitutionality of that, it appears, that the court thinks it probably is unconstitutional. But here's my big question. Could it have an impact if they say, no, there ought to be much broader rights to carry a concealed weapon in New York and the other states that have those restrictions? Could it have an impact in Georgia, where we already have pretty loose gun laws as it is? Yes,
3: yeah, so it wouldn't affect Georgia so much because Georgia already allows for concealed carry permits, um, and as do um, over 40 states. So this would affect... Um, the, uh, the the seven to nine states um, where it's very difficult to get or impossible to get a concealed carry permit. And so the, the constitutional question is, so the Supreme Court has said under the Second Amendment that people have an individual right to bear uh, arms in the home. And the question here is, does that extend uh, beyond the home? Um, and, uh, and so it looks like the Supreme Court is going to give kind of a narrow ruling where they say yes, it does extend beyond the home, but there is still some room um, to ban guns and what they're uh, they're likely to call sensitive places um, like courthouses. Uh, which, of course, that's going to be on the list, um, and uh, and then they'll and and that you know the uh, legislature has to make the case that something is in fact a sensitive space before they ban it.
4: Mary Margaret, well, is let me really ask a quick mo- question to, to to the professor: uh, the Heller decision that 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 they came down in 2008, they did specifically recognize the ability of states uh, to impose some restrictions on safety concerns. And I think they, they did specifically recognize uh, the permit requirement being reasonable, didn't they? Wasn't that a well, decision?
3: they said sensitive places and they said uh, felons and uh, people with uh, who suffer from mental disabilities. Those were the three categories they identified. Yeah.
0: Guns are one of the uh, significant issues where the public is is in one place and the politicians are ignoring the public's wishes. Uh, Crime, public safety, uh, the thing, the emotional connection that people have, the fear of guns, the uh, constant placement of guns in their face in relation to uh, political will against what people will, is what the optics and the reality politically of this United States Supreme Court case is. One more time, we're focusing on a very minority group who want to have uh, concealed carry guns everywhere, anywhere, for any purpose, uh, playing out the political discussion. The uh, ban on assault weapons that was successful for 10 years that went away politically <laughs> is also coming to the United States Supreme Court. All of that it creates, in my view, political problems as we move forward into the 2020 years.
5: All right. Um, Mary Margaret Oliver, you get the last word on today's show. And thank you all for bearing with me when I completely lost power. Um, I appreciate the fact that you were able to continue and have a smart conversation without me, which just goes to show that you really all do quite fine when I am not a part of the conversation. But in the meantime, thank you, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, Fred Smith, Kevin Riley, for a terrific conversation today. We're back again with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care, stay healthy, wear your mask when you're around other people. And uh, if you're like me and eligible for a booster shot, now's the time to get it, even while you get your flu shot at the same time. We'll see you all tomorrow. Take care, everybody.